You look worried, Edward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what's coming now. <laughs> This is the Convergent Science Network podcast. So it, it's good cop, bad cop, and pulls the bad cop. Leading researchers in the domain of neuroscience, brain theory, and technology are interviewed by Paul Verschur and Tony Prescott. After he's finished beating up, I'll give you some easy questions. <laughs> so, uh, all right. So this is um, Paul Verschur together with Tony Prescott for the Conversion Science Network podcast that we're recording at our uh, BCBT summer school here in Barcelona, 2015. And our guest today is Edward Moser, um, who gave a fantastic talk this morning about how the brain knows about space. And you started your talk uh, emphasizing this whole challenge of, of combining psychology with physiology to find, if you want, this sort of physical, mechanistic perspective on, on psychology. Is that, is that really the motivation that drives this work? And Yeah, in a general sense, uh, it has always been. So uh, uh, when uh, we started out uh, as psychology students uh, uh, many years ago, that, uh, I mean, there wa it wasn't possible to say much about the physical substrate of, uh, of uh, psychology or behavior in any sense, but still that uh, has been a major driving force. The fact that uh, I ended up in, uh, in uh, work on uh, space is kind of a coincidence. It's uh, partly because uh, I started out in the hippocampus and partly because uh, it turned out that these, uh, uh, this part of the brain has cells that are so directly related to what's going on in the outside. It's actually an easy way into the cortex, but uh, it could have been any function. So, I mean, whether it's space or if it's uh, some other cognition, doesn't matter. I think what uh, is the underlying drive to me is that it uh, is informative about the workings of the cortex. Uh, so, uh, in, a, in a more general sense, it, it helps us to begin understanding how the cortex uh, computes how uh, functions might arise, of course, early, only an early beginning, but uh, it's an easier place to start than many other brain areas. But now when you made that decision to, to then go for hippocampus, was it in any way, let's say, inspired by the cognitive behaviorism of, of Tolman? Uh, to some extent it was. It was inspired by uh, 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 the fact that uh, much of... Uh, Uh, in, this was in the in the 80s and early 90s, and uh, uh, then uh, there was a huge interest in uh, LTP, long-term potentiation, and its relation to memory. And of course, memory was strongly linked to the hippocampus. So, it, uh, there was much interest at that time in finding a cellular uh, mechanism of a behavior, which then in that case was memory. So uh, that uh, um, was the background for starting with the hippocampus. At that time, there was not much uh, work or interest yet in neural networks. That came or increased quite a lot during the 1990s. But uh, nonetheless, uh, the possibility for bridging two levels was perhaps more developed in uh, hippocampus than most other parts of cortex. Mm. But in that sense, I was a bit surprised that you didn't mention Pavlov as, as a source <laughs> of inspiration because what, what always struck me in Pavlov was that he, he had to make that decision. Like here the dog has expectations, so what do I do? I'm going to speculate about it or I'm mm -hmm. going to build a, mm -hmm. a physiology mm -hmm. of, this, of this psychic reflex, as he called it, right? So yeah, no, no, that's uh, Pavlov was... Uh, was really, uh, he, he really changed the field uh, just in that sense that he dared to link the two mm -hmm. levels. So, uh, um, I mean, I could have mentioned Pavlov too. My history uh, lasted about four minutes, so <laughs> <laughs> I just couldn't mention everyone. But, uh, mm. of course, Pavlov is uh, a major uh, part of uh, the history of physiological mm -hmm. psychology. So now the your, your, your entry point into into, let's say, this neural substrate of psychological function is hippocampus, mm -hmm. right? So you started, you started looking at place cells and place cell responses. Mm -hmm. So, uh, however, that was not where you ended up. Mm -hmm. so, so what was the trajectory there of, let's mm -hmm. say, discovery that brought you to these extra hippocampal areas? Mm -hmm. Now, so it began with place cells and uh, uh, in the, uh, around 1990, it was a common view that... Uh, 
that uh, place cells were formed uh, uh, quite strongly by intrinsic processes in the hippocampus. And the reason was that at that time, uh, no really specific uh, spatial signal had been uh, discovered in the entorhinal cortex outside the hippocampus. Uh, so uh, it began with, uh, as I mentioned in the lecture, uh, a study where we um, disrupted the intrinsic hippocampal circuit and then saw that in the remaining part there were still spatial signals. So it sort of forced us out to the next stage, which was the entorhinal cortex. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, because we had... Uh, uh, and that uh, collaborated strongly with, uh, with a, an, uh, a neuroanatomist, Menno Witter, uh, who, uh, who has later moved to uh, our institute in Trondheim. Then uh, we had an expert on uh, how the entorhinal cortex was organized and what would be the best way to target electrodes into it. So we dared to jump into that area. And then, uh, then suddenly we found spatial cells and later found also that they were actually quite strikingly uh, hexagonally mm -hmm. organized. But now, how many observations did it take for you to be convinced <laughs> that these cells had these very specific properties that you found? Now, that took it took a while. I mean, it was gradual because we, we uh, realized quite early that they had spatial fields like uh, uh, place cells in the hippocampus. And we also noticed that there were um, regular patterns. And uh, we had a long, the first paper that we published in 2004 we, we noticed that it was very uh, extremely regular, much more than you would expect by chance. We showed that, but uh, the, the data were not sufficient to really tell uh, what kind of pattern it was, and uh, that required bigger environments. And then the year after, we then tested them in larger environments, and then uh, it was, uh, was very, uh, was very, uh, very clear, really. So, mm -hmm. uh, um, I mean, it, that didn't take a lot of... Um, work, but we also needed to rule out pretty obvious things like uh, <laughs> whether the the grid pattern maybe was an artifact or some part of the electronics of the system or so, because it was so regular that uh, then alarm clocks started to, to ring, but uh, that was not the case. So. Mm -hmm. But now the uh, I remember the, the, these first publications that came out in 2005 about mm. on, on the grid cells, it, it still looked like a very risky proposition. It looked like iffy in some sense, like, oh, well, maybe mm. they're over-interpreting this mm. data. So, so so you found these cells in an medial entorhinal cortex, yeah. um, supposedly an input station to the hippocampus, even though this had an interesting twist mm. a bit later mm. on. Mm. Um, so you say, okay, there's a grid-like response. They have a triangular kind of, of response field in the environment with a certain facing and orientation and, and, and spatial scale. So, but how much resistance did you then receive and actually getting that getting that published uh well not a lot of resistance actually people uh, tended to believe it um right away so uh, uh i think pe people were amazed but uh, uh, there was very little skepticism and i think the data were quite clear i mean you could see it in individual cells it didn't really depend on any sophisticated analysis mm -hmm. so uh so um, it was very hard to actually uh, think of alternative ways that you could, could get this data. Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned that uh, you had the help of somebody who knew entorhinal cortex. So mm -hmm. I mean, is that why you found these? Because people had looked before and hadn't, hadn't found anything that was a signature for space. Yeah, yeah. No, so, um, I mean, what we did was that we put... Uh, we started recording in, uh, in a more dorsal, more uh, superficial part of... Uh, of the entorhinal cortex where uh, no one had recorded before and uh, with the in in the collaboration with uh, this neuroanatomist it was possible to to target electrodes precisely to an area that was uh, uh, had a maximal connectivity with the place cells uh, that had been recorded in the hippocampus um, what had been done in the earlier studies was that uh, people recorded in areas that were too ventral, too deep into the brain. Uh, and they were probably also grid cells, but uh, because the scale is so different, uh, the distance between the fields is different and the fields are so much bigger, then when they recorded in standard-sized boxes, they didn't see the periodicity simply because they didn't have enough fields. So now, what... So, so, so okay, you discover these cells... Um, 
people buy it and they're convinced because there's no alternative explanation. No, yes. But now, what do you see as their as their key properties? So, how, and how do you see these key properties organized in this in this piece of brain? Um, well, it has several key properties. It's quite uh, actually organized. Uh, uh, in the sense that uh, they vary uh, along several dimensions. They have different phase or XY firing locations. They vary in scale. They vary in orientation. Uh, so one of the key properties it has, it has turned out later is that they're organized uh, in what we call modules. So clusters or cells with very similar firing properties. Uh, so there are at least four or five of them, maybe as many as ten. Um, of cells that be, uh, within each module, the grid cells behave in a very rigid way so that two cells that for example have similar uh, phase or similar firing locations in one environment will also have it in another if they have a special uh, orientation difference then they would have it in a different one too so uh, the whole the whole map is very that's another uh, very salient property of the network that it's extremely rigid so you can almost take the map from one environment or from one grid module and apply it onto another environment and you will see the same relationship. And that's probably a property you would expect of any system that serves at least partly as a metric for space because you don't want to reinvent or, or that mechanism for uh, every representation of maybe several thousand environments that you have stored in the brain. Um, so uh, that has at least two very important properties of uh, the network but now these cells don't emerge by magic right they themselves are also dependent on on external inputs mm, yeah of course they are embedded in a wider network and uh, and first of all uh, although we believe that uh, the clues to the hexagonal pattern uh, lies in the cortex or maybe even in the enterinous cortex itself it's, it cannot arise in isolation so it depends for example it, it must depend on on both uh, speed and direction inputs that uh, are likely to come from outside because there's no other way that you can actually uh, create uh, a dynamic map that reflects the distances that uh, an animal moves in the environment so uh, um, fundamental inputs are information about speed and direction, instantaneous speed and instantaneous direction. In addition to that, uh, so this is what needs to is required to generate a map that uh, is based on self-motion. But in addition, you need to calibrate that map all the time against other sensors, for example, visual inputs. So uh, there is probably a, a continuous correction process going on all the time as well. Uh, what do you mean with correction in this case? Yeah, so uh, path integration is, is a clue here. So um, the grid cells... Um, um, if you let an animal walk in an open environment... Uh, uh, it may it may have a grid pattern, but uh, um, so in in uh, if there are lots of visual inputs available, then the grid pattern will use those visual inputs to for the cell to fire at the same locations uh, all the time. So that's a stable grid pattern. If that input is not available, it will start to drift over time uh, because even if it uses the animal's own motion to generate an approximate uh, firing map then uh, there are occasional errors and they add on to each other unless you have other inputs that tell you that now you're drifting off. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I believe happens in real life is that uh, when lots of other cues are available, like visual cues, visual information, then this is used to sort of get the motion-based track uh, uh, map on track. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this, this would also allude to, let's say, these experiments you've done, even though you didn't discuss them here, where you, for instance, morph the environment slowly, right? Mm -hmm. Where you can really sort of try to show how this kind of integration of, say, other sensory states mm -hmm. like visual information with uh, space might might occur in this whole loop that then starts with enterinal cortex. Yeah. So, but so, but then, do you still see that there is a a special role for grid cells in that integration process? Because it means, okay, here I have sensory states in the world. They come in over my lateral enterinal cortex. I have hand direction and velocity driving my grid cells, tells me about space. This information gets some further processed in the hippocampal loop. Mm -hmm. But then do you see these two sources of information as being 
equally weighted in that integration or do you see the grid cells as being of sort of a having a higher priority in that process well i i wouldn't say that one has a higher priority than the other i mean the grids pattern is uh, probably intrinsically generated and, and as such is is quite fundamental but it needs that other input to to be aligned uh, to the environment uh, and of course both of them are equally important and and uh, I should also add that grid cells may help to create a spatial reference frame but what goes into the hippocampus is equally much dominated by for example inputs from the lateral entorhinal cortex which we understand much less but which may uh, be informative about uh, all the other types of changes that occurs in, in an environment like the experiences that an animal has while it's walking around in the space. But now if we just look at let's say cell numbers, which of these two divisions would, would be, let's say, dominant from just a perspective of cell volume? Uh, you mean uh, medial versus mm-hmm. lateral entorhinal yeah. cortex? I, I would think that they are both important. I mean, the number of cells is about the same. Okay. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just that we don't understand the lateral input mm-hmm. uh, much at all. Right. Mm. You mentioned that... Uh, the grid cells occur in these modules and the modules are at different spatial scales. Mm. Uh, does that mean that across the whole set of modules uh, you're imagining that the animal has access to uh, a unique code for its location in space? Th- 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 would it operate in that way? Um, because obviously within any single module mm. y- you know you're, you're, you're on the grid but you don't know exactly where you are on the grid. Mm. But maybe relative to the other modules you can build yeah, up a more unique exactly you position. need to use the modules in combination to get a unique code because otherwise uh, there are multiple solutions yeah so uh that can either happen within the entorhinal cortex itself or just as likely it may use the hippocampus where the modules are likely to converge onto onto place cells so um how that occurs is not known but uh, i would think that uh, uh, it would be very smart of the brain to actually compare the activity of different modules at any given time and not just let them uh, drift on their own. And does the connectivity into the hippocampus suggest that, for instance, place cells have that ability to read out from the multiple mm. modules? Well, that's what we are investigating now. It's not a very simple environment because you need actually to determine what are the inputs to an individual place cell uh, but uh, and now with uh, rabies uh, virus tracing, you can actually find the functional inputs onto a single place cells. And the aim then is to determine whether uh, grid cells from different modules converge or whether they actually somehow stay separate in, in hippocampal cells. Yeah, so in this, in this example, we are following, let's say, a causal chain that would go like, well, we have entorhinal cortex, these inputs go into hippocampus. Uh, grid cells are a part of that, 50-50 with lateral entorhinal cortex telling you other stuff. Mm. But this provides some key information for a place cell to give a, a response to a location. Mm. And this, if you want, we could call this sort of the, the standard interpretation for quite mm-hmm. a while. Mm-hmm. But that, that interpretation is now under some, under some challenge, right? Because apparently also without grid cells or without this connection or the, the grid cells might not even target those cells directly them or you can even get rid of them so what's the situation there in your perspective are the grid cells really key in driving a place cell response or they're extra i'm pretty sure that the grid cells are still key in driving place cells under normal circumstances but the place cells appear to be responsive to a lot of inputs and can probably make some sort of spatial signal even out of uh, other cell types that have a spatial uh, bias, like cells in the lateral entorhinal cortex that are also weakly spatial, and if uh, but still have enough information that at least if you average over many cells, you can tell quite precisely mm-hmm. where you are. And place cells seem to be able to to use that. Doesn't mean that they don't normally rely on on grid cells. Mm-hmm. I would still think that grid cells and border cells are are the major inputs, uh, uh, but. Um, Places are able to do the best out of very little, though uh, when place cells, uh, in in cases where uh, the medial entorhinal cortex is uh, lesioned, uh, or place uh, or grid cells are somehow otherwise inactivated, 
the 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 place cells are usually not very they are not normal i mean they are mm-hmm. very unstable for example so that uh, and they are also not apparently not able to to switch between uh, environments so mm-hmm. that uh, changing maps is also not easy so it's not a normal network but uh, the threshold for a, a hippocampal cells to become a place cell is is quite low but that means that you see actually two complementary models of place cell formation because one could be also, this this older idea from from O'Keefe and Burgess and others that you just have weakly tuned spatial responses coming in, for instance, from lateral and toronto cortex, and by just integrating over those, mm-hmm. you can then get a, a space specific mm-hmm. response. Mm-hmm. And the complement would be the grid cells that will give you a redundant response, but by averaging over many of them again, you get specificity. Mm-hmm. So then mm-hmm. these two modes would be be operating in parallel. Yeah, it's two ways, and they are not mutually exclusive. Right. But I think what it shows is that uh, uh, it helps to have these spatial inputs, so you can probably use several of them. And then there must be some intrinsic hippocampal processing that we still don't quite understand. Uh, it may involve neuronal plasticity, it may also involve other circuit uh, mechanisms that then uh, um, that help shape uh, a place out of maybe not so precise uh, spatial activity. Mm-hmm. Right. So the other, the other thing you can do is, is you can combine, if you like, the sort of metric properties of your grid cell map with the sort of more topographic relationships that you would get from sort of cues in the environment. Yes. And so you could build up um, an idea about what's adjacent to what yeah. based purely on those features. And that could give you activity in your place cells independent of your metric map. Yeah, I believe that uh, both both uh, mechanisms are, are likely to be used. So it is somewhat uh, redundant. Uh, um, that uh, also probably explains why at very early ages, when grid cells are still not uh, highly periodic and uh, in an immature state, you can still get nice place cells because, for example, you have the border uh, cell inputs are already intact from the first day. And uh, there's also evidence from uh, from groups uh, at UCL in London, which suggests that uh, at that early stage, the place cells are more precise uh, near the borders of the environment and then in the middle, which is consistent with grid cells uh, having a role where they sort of map the entire environment and the metrics of the environment, where border cells are maybe more responsive to... Uh, to uh, to um, the specific landmarks and especially geometric references. And I think also we touched in the talk on the effect of an environmental context and things like the presence of of of, of daylight. So if you're moving in darkness, yeah. you may be more reliant on this grid cell map. Absolutely. If it's uh, a nice sunny day and you've got access to lots of visual cues, yeah. maybe you don't need that information so much. No, no, that's true. So, uh, I mean, in, in most cases, you have much more cues than you actually need. So it's quite hard to to uh, perturb the system. But uh, in darkness, um, self-motion is more important, although you can still uh, come do quite well even with uh, just tactile cues you bump into the corners uh, and so on so that you can at least occasionally reset uh, and, and get the map to work but of course as you get out in the open space there's no other reference than your own motion and for that grid cells are probably quite important mm-hmm. but now the, the situation has gone actually has become more complicated because now you have also identified many other cell types in this little bit of, uh, mm. of brain and toronto cortex. Like we now have border cells, we have speed cells, we have head direction cells, mm-hmm. right? So, so what's, what's the relative proportion of these different types of cells in entorhinal cortex? Yeah, in our experience, still the most uh, uh, abundant cell is definitely the grid cell, at least if you uh, search in the superficial layers in layer two and, and also to some extent in layer three. Uh, maybe even almost half of the cells in layer two um, seem to be grid cells. It's a bit hard to tell because uh, as you get, at least if you get further deeper, then you get uh, scale cells with larger scales, not so always so easy to tell if there are grid cells. But in addition, then we also have, as you said, the head action cells there in layer three and five, they are very abundant, maybe the most abundant cell type. Uh, and then you have border cells, seem to be around 10%. Uh, they are in, in all layers, but especially uh, 10% also in layer 2. And uh, speed cells are maybe about 15% across all layers. So uh, 
So, uh, but for the speed cells, for example, even if they are only 15%, many of them seem to be interneurons. They have interneuron-like properties, at least, which means that they connect to a large number of cells. So their influence, even if it's only 15%, is probably extremely important. They probably influence every, every mm-hmm. single grid cell. But you interpret... So as, as you say now, right, you see those different cell types very much as forming local circuits that help the grid cells to stay on track, or you see them as a, as a forward pathway into the hippocampus? No, I, I well, both, of course, but uh, I, I do think they are important for the local circuit because the grid cells uh, uh, need the, the speed and, and the direction cells to stay updated uh, but of course, the result of all of this uh, is then fed into the hippocampus. Uh, so, uh, I mean, they are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. But so now, you, also in your talk, you you then gave us an interpretation of how these different cells might work together. In particular, you were talking about how the border cells might actually be interacting with grid cells to sort of help them in aligning to to an environment. So, how how would that how does that work out? Yeah, I mean, what 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 the role is of uh, each cell type is, of course, um, still a matter of speculation because we don't have the tools to manipulate it. But what we see with the grid cells is that they are heavily influenced by uh, by the borders of the environment. So as you get close to the borders, then the grid cells tend to get distorted. Uh, so they are not perfectly hexagonal any longer. And that can be explained by... Uh, um, forces that operate along the walls uh, and then both uh, deform and uh, rotate the grid patterns in certain ways. So um, most likely this is mediated through border cells because they have activity that uh, correspond to uh, the orientation of the walls and also activity that uh, decreases as you get away from the walls, but um, how this is implemented exactly in the network is still uh, very much an open issue. Mm-hmm. We don't know how that happens. Because there, there are different ways to... Th- maybe the, we could argue that the, the, the notion border cell might be, might be a bit of too restricted interpretation of what they do. You could also argue that maybe these are just cells that go for, let's say, salient aspects of the mm. environment that can mm. be exploited as anchors. Mm. So it's more like a salience uh, or a landmark... It could be. Uh, Now we have put individual um, more point-like landmarks into the environment in the past, and usually they have quite limited influence on on the cells that we have uh, recorded, uh, um, at least in the medial enterhinal cortex. In the lateral enterhinal cortex, there are cells that actually do respond to particular objects um, and uh, and their location, so they fire around those objects, even if you then remove them afterwards. Um, but those uh, those are not really part of the medial entorhinal mm-hmm. network. No, but your interpretation would really be like I have my grid cells; they give me, let's say, an initial description of a space in which I can operate. This space is seen in a planar perspective; it's not three dimensional; mm-hmm. it's a, it's a two dimensional mm-hmm. plane. And my border cells would really be telling me where the where the end is of mm, that mm. of that flat world in which I exist. Mm. You would agree with that? Uh, yes, but not only where the end is. I would rather say where there are sign- significant or salient uh, uh, reference directions. Mm-hmm. So if you put a wall into, uh, into the middle of uh, an environment, you will still get the border cells, some of the border cells to fire along that wall mm-hmm. too. So it doesn't mean it's the end, but it's... Uh, they're very sing- significant for anchoring the grid. Mm-hmm. And for anchoring, it's, of course, uh, most effective, actually, to use straight mm-hmm. lines wherever they are. Mm-hmm. But now you could also argue that maybe the border cells are just responding to the dynamics of the grid cells. Because if I'm running over, let's say I'm running over this table and there are edges, that also means there are certain positions in space. In other words, there are, other, there are certain attractor states of my grid cells I will never, I will never reach. Mm-hmm. And, and, and these might be giving you transient responses in the population of grid cells that you can pick up and then say, mm. aha, this mm-hmm. is an important transient in my dynamic. Mm. So that's the grid cell driving the border cell. Mm. Would you buy that interpretation or there's something missing in that? No, I think it goes both ways. Mm. So uh, I think the border cells uh, influence the grid cells, but the grid cells will then also again influence the border cells. I think they are probably bi-directionally connected and... and uh, sort of they work together all the time mm-hmm. okay so now so now we have our our map um in, of our of our grid cells and 
this is tightly coupled to hippocampus, which sort of now loops back the cortex onto itself. Um, so what is the hippocampus doing with this information? Well, uh, one striking difference between uh, place cells in the hippocampus and the grid cells, uh, or, or all of the cells actually in medial and terminal cortex, is that uh, in the hippocampus, uh, place cells form uh, individual maps for every single environment. So uh, for every um, environment where a rat is tested, uh, it seems to generate uh, orthogonal maps almost, maps that are completely independent. Uh, which uh, fits very well with what you would expect uh, from a memory perspective on the hippocampus, that you actually form uh, discrete uh, uh, representations for uh, different experiences in in uh, the animal's uh, life, which is very much in contrast to what we have seen in entorhinal cortex, where uh, the uh, firing relationships are sort of preserved from one environment to the other. And um, so that that is an important feature of hippocampal uh, uh, activity how that is uh, transformation is generated that's uh, a very important task that uh, we still have no data for uh, it can happen perhaps by combining activity from different modules because uh, by differentially um, uh, combining activity from modules you can get a large number of activity patterns but uh, that's still uh, quite uncertain mm-hmm. But of course, you could also argue that entorhinal cortex is maybe not a main source of information for hippocampus, but it's actually a main source of information for the rest of the cortex. So, so how do you see that exchange? Uh, well, the exchange between entorhinal cortex and the rest of, of cortex is not very well understood at all. Uh, then, of course, uh, if just based on pure connectivity, we know that uh, entorhinal cortex is not an island. It really interacts with almost the entire rest of the cortex. And uh, we also know that uh, navigation is not only a hippocampal entorhinal phenomenon. Navigation, uh, maybe the creation of an internal map involves those two structures particularly, but the internal map needs to be used uh, uh, for the animal to get from A to B, and uh, for navigation in a broader sense, beyond forming maps, you actually need the entire brain, and Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, that involves, for example, prefrontal cortex, which is important for planning, how you get from one place to the other. So uh, um, it's very important to remember that uh, the entorhinal hippocampal network is is part of a wider system. And uh, I think in the future, we'll probably um, try to understand these other cortical regions too, although it's a quite challenging task. Mm-hmm. Of course. But now the, the other amazing uh, result you, you presented today was in some sense taking away all doubt anyone might have about the metric properties of these grid cells because you show how amazingly precisely they are aligned with the space in which the animal operates. So what what are the basic observations there? Uh, with regard to the metric, I mean, uh, the metric of... Uh, uh, of um, well, first of all, when we started out, I mean, the... Uh, the grid cells um, appear to be, I mean, we were struck by their enormous regularity and the fact that they form a perfect grid that with 60 degree angles that uh, repeats itself all over the space. But then uh, uh, as we start looking closer and especially in large environments, uh, it's uh, easy to observe that uh, the grid is actually slightly deformed, especially near uh, the, um, the walls or the ends of the environment where you see that uh, borders, uh, walls have strong influences and sort of deform the grid. And uh, of course, that then raises the question whether does this have any consequence for uh, for the uh, use of uh, the grid uh, to infer directions and distances? Uh, I would still say that uh, by and large, uh, you can infer uh, position and direction from the grid, even as it is, even with these slight distortions. But of course, it would be interesting to see if these distortions that are present in the map would also transfer to behavior. So maybe our judgment of position might be slightly um, distorted Mm -hmm. also. That's uh, Mm -hmm. something that would be interested to have tested at some point. Right. But you also showed that the grids align with the cardinal axis of the environment. Yes. 
right? So Almost. Oh, and this was the weird <laughs> thing about it, but it was sort of perfectly aligned with a tiny offset. Mm, and they are an offset of seven and a half degrees on average, so mm. that the axis of the... Uh, the grid has three axes, so, so the axis that is closest to one of the walls is uh, usually offset by, on average, uh, seven and a half degrees. Mm-hmm. And that we interpret then as a result of a, what we call a shearing process, uh, which uh, probably begins on day one when the animal experiences the environment that is forces along walls that when uh, distort the grid pattern and as part of the distortion process also gets it to rotate mm-hmm. uh, one, uh, especially one of its axes. Uh, right. No, but also what, what was really interesting is that on the one end you see that one of the cardinal axes is, t- is, is, is taken as the anchor point, mm-hmm. if you want, mm-hmm. and the orthogonal one is ignored. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. In that particular experiment, yes. Ah, okay. This yes. is not always the case. Not always the case. Okay. So quite, uh, it depends. Uh, and in that particular experiment that I referred to, where it always chooses one of the axes, it's important to remember that uh, the rats were introduced to the environment in a very, very consistent way. So all of the rats were placed in exactly the same corner uh, with uh, all or much of the focus uh, to cues in that along one particular wall of the box. Uh, and perhaps this may have shaped the animal as it uh, in its uh, the form initial formation of uh, the grid cell map that they may have used walls along cues along one wall more mm-hmm. than another that's our hypothesis this is of course something that we would need to test but mm-hmm. uh, the effect of uh, i would assume that the early uh, environment uh, i mean the environment as it is on on the very first experience is very important for how the grid actually is anchored uh, Right, and also there we we should not forget that these animals are of course come pre-equipped with a lot of let's say stereotype behavior. So mm-hmm. you put them in that corner, mm-hmm. and they will all start to do tigmotaxis. They will mm-hmm. just run around the walls, mm-hmm. exactly. either clockwise or counterclockwise. Yes. Yeah. So that means this early experience is shaped in a very stereotype way for all of them. Mm-hmm. Right. So that and this is a bit surprising that you have this sort of more mechanical. In a metaphor to interpret the, the distortion of the grid in terms of shearing. Mm-hmm. But then the alternative would be a more behavioral uh, interpretation where you say, well, look, if I'm thrown in the environment or with all my friends, always in the same corner, and we all will have a stereotype response of Tigmotaxis running mm-hmm. along the walls mm-hmm. for quite a while, this will give me quite a bias in my input sampling. Mm-hmm. That that might then lead to that distortion of my mm. of my grid self response. Would yeah, yeah. No, I, I think those explanations are not uh, mutually exclusive. Mm. I think you can get what we observe or mechanically can describe as a shearing process through uh, um, a behavioral filtering in a way where the where the uh, animals actually focus on certain cues and uh, and perhaps have much more attention on those than others. So. Uh, uh, I, I think that is a possible implementation. No, wait, we don't even we don't need to consider attention because imagine I just do take more taxes. I mm. just run around, mm. and whether mm. I'm paying attention or not, mm. I will drive my grid cells in a very specific mm-hmm. order. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And given that this is a hyperplastic mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. that then gives you the bias. That's possible. Right? Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, you you can even do it probably at least in principle without attention, simply by activating cells. Exactly. I agree yeah, with that. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, um, but now the um the interpretation of of the this this realignment of the grids or their formation um to what extent do we really have to think about the box in which the animal is or the animal will also consider also going back to tolman right the the global cues that are out there in mm-hmm. the environment mm-hmm. so are these controlled for are these all mm-hmm. local is this all local sensory information taken into account mm-hmm. also is there global sources no of course it uses all kinds of cues uh, but yet it is uh, if you test an animal in in a box like the ones we do the the strong the local cues and especially the walls of the environment are uh, have a strong very strong influence on most of the grid cells um, uh, at the same time, we also see that they sometimes respond to cues that are further away, and that may even differ across grid cells. Maybe some respond, some modules maybe, uh, depending on scale, may respond more to distal and others more to proximal cues, still not settled. Uh, but uh, um, in some experiments, we simply uh, try to 
close out all the distal cues by simply pulling curtains around mm-hmm. and you get essentially the same results. So the local cues are very important, mm-hmm. but uh, of course they all matter. But now you, you use the concept of anchoring also for this, right? That you have mm. to anchor that grid cell map in some properties of the environment or, I guess, some intrinsic signal. Mm. So so if you would have to define this anchoring as a in, in sort of a neural mechanistic sense, yeah, how would you realize that kind of anchoring? Well, I, I uh, the way I often think about it is that it's uh, it's synaptic plasticity. It's a kind of learning process where you associate uh, the firing pattern of the grid, a free-floating grid in a way, with uh, a certain environmental reference that is then somehow mediated to the entorhinal cortex mm-hmm. via, for example, visual inputs, mm-hmm. could also be other ways. And um, that um, there is uh, plasticity taking place, usually, I would assume, quite early on, on the first trial and then that uh, sets the grid in a certain way and then uh, it remains that mm-hmm. way for the rest of the time but but that would mean that you're saying there's some external signal that says now this is important anchor to this or you see it more as a continuous sampling that converges into some attractor state that is this anchor um well, I, I think it will use whatever uh, sensory input is present right from the beginning. I don't. I think this happens almost instantaneously. Exactly how it happens, uh, that I don't know. I, I think um, um, whether that involves an attractor process as such is maybe not necessary. Really, you need just need to. Even if you have an attractor that shapes the grid pattern, you just need to associate with certain inputs so that you can start out there next time you come back. And then in that, let's say it is an attractor state, and then you get the starting point uh, for the next trial when Mm -hmm. you come back and then in that sense re-experience the activity. But have you in that sense considered a role for neuromodulators? Because here I am, I'm your rat, you put me in this environment, I've never been here before, mm. lots of novelty, lots mm. of stress, mm. acetylcholine is coming mm. out, dopamine is mm. being released, yes. very strong learning signals yeah. Yeah. that can serve then to, to sort of define an initial anchoring exactly. if you want. Yeah, is so that, that happens very it? fast and that's uh, that you get, uh, uh, that certainly helps to, uh, to stabilize the map mm-hmm. right away from the beginning. So your prediction would be if you, if you would, let's say, use antagonists to this mm. kind of neuromodulators, anchoring would be, uh, re, let's say, compromised. Yeah, that that uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. So so now, now that we know uh, a bit more about the grid cells, you have then also looked in, in detail really at very much psychologists' question of, of is this nature, is it nurture, mm-hmm, right? Is mm-hmm. it an innate... A system, it's an innate autometer in some way, or is it really dependent on experience? Mm. So what what have you learned from those experiments? Well, it's still ongoing work, but uh, the initial experiments that we did a couple of years ago have shown basically that for several of these cell types, uh, they uh, express adult-like properties almost from the beginning, at least when we can measure them. So place cells uh, have look more or less adult-like, uh, from the first day when uh, we can actually record activity. When animals start walking out of the nest and, and cover uh, at least small environmental spaces, then you can already measure place cells. Head direction cells uh, have directional preferences even before uh, the rat pups leave the nest because we can record them even before the eyes open. So a directional uh, tuning is present very, very early on. And border cells, also like play cells, are very early there. Grid cells, though, are a bit slower. So they take another week or two before they get adult-like properties. So in this early stage, um, during the first week or two after the animals start walking around, then they they have periodic firing patterns, but uh, it's not very regular. Uh, And that uh, that probably leaves a window for experience to actually... uh, uh, to influence the network and uh, and uh, perhaps uh, help uh, with the anchoring process. So mm-hmm. we did then. I presented experiments that are still going on, where um, where we have raised uh, rats in environments that have uh, where the animals are really deprived of borders. So uh, one group was then raised in a spherical environment until they were adult, and. Um, 
in the absence of um, environmental borders, we then tested these animals when they became adult, whether they actually could form normal grid cells. And it turns out that that probably takes a longer time mm -hmm. or it maybe even may not happen, if the, at least if the environment is large enough, um, compared to what happens if you raise the animals in, in, in uh, environments that do have borders and cubes, uh, which otherwise are very similar. So is it possible that uh, the difference between the spherical environment and the rectangular environment is that this mechanism whereby uh, the borders or the visual cues that uh, for the borders correct for the slip in the path integration is Yeah, is I think that is, uh, that is uh, a major thing that the net network has to learn how to... Uh, both how to anchor to uh, associate with uh, environmental uh, directional cues in the environment right from the beginning, but also to use that as the animal is walking around to correct as uh, at the time when the grid pattern is beginning to drift. And if that hasn't uh, taken place in early development, that may compromise the grid pattern at, at the more adult stage. And s something else obviously that's happening in those first few weeks of life is the animal is changing enormously in size and morphology. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. uh, if the mechanisms that are contributing to path integration are to do with gait and body length yeah. and speed, mm. then you can't fix those in place at day 11 when you first wander out the nest. Exactly. You have to be able to calibrate as you uh, grow in size mm. and speed. So, mm. And it may continue to calibrate, I guess, throughout life. Mm. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that it even stops at uh, P30. Uh, so this is probably a process that's going for quite a while. And uh, to the extent that... that uh, just footsteps, length of footsteps, are used by the animal actually to calibrate position. This is something that has to go on for quite a while. But of course, they don't only use that. They can use other sources of uh, speed information too. But now this experiment might, might really help us to understand better the causal chain of this system because actually the grid cells appear to last, mm. right? So in mm. some sense, it's telling us something really important about the scaffolding of this learning process. And mm. apparently you really start with speed, head direction, mm. border cells, mm. even place cells. Mm. And only once that scaffold is sort of put together, mm. can grid cells be formed. Mm. Is that also how you how you think about it? The grid cells really floating on that information? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, obviously, as you say, the grid cells, um, they, they do uh, still provide um, some metric information even right from the beginning. Uh, so even if you don't really see that very well in individual cells, the population would still provide the hippocampus at least with place information. But it certainly um, alerts us to the possibility that you... Uh, for the other cell types, like for place cells, you don't really need a lot of uh, grid uh, activity for or spatial activity for a spatial signal to be created. But I would think that at that early stage, there's still something that is missing, and, and then that which is later contributed by the grid cells, which is the precise metrics ability mm -hmm. to actually calculate exactly where you are, and especially when you're far away from visual uh, cues. And uh, perhaps this is something that is not... Um, present until the animal is a bit uh, older. But then do you interpret this as a stage-wise development where let's say first I get my play cells, border cells, speed cells, etc. I build my grid cells and now I liberate my hippocampus to start mm. to dedicate itself to different tasks. So I move now to a different phase of operation. Mm. Or do you believe that the system will be operating in the same state as it was in when you were born? Well, I don't think that you liberate the hippocampus to do other things, but I mean, hippocampus may take on other tasks. That's very well possible. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but I, uh, the the entorhinal network network is not really mature until very late, actually, because uh, uh, it continues to develop. The connectivity, especially via the interneurons, is not mature until you are about, uh, if you are at, until you are about almost four weeks mm -hmm. old. So that's very late. And uh, um, I think that is important because it really allows for experience to shape the animal. And maybe experience is important because it's not only about creating a single grid pattern. You actually need to probably link together grid patterns for small patches of space. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and um, that uh, may require experience with spatial environments. Right. Okay. But 
And on the other hand, it, of course, also means that the more frontal areas in the brain are also still developing. And mm. your interrandal cortex also mm. has to deal with that mm. as an interface yes. to the hippocampus. Right? Yes. This might be another constraint that we have to take into account. Uh, and especially when it comes to planning how to use the uh, maps and uh, linking them to action, that may uh, still not be mature. That hasn't been studied, but mm. uh, it's very well possible that that takes even longer time. Right. Now, you're also talking about this link to other brain structures. You shortly mentioned this this link to, to prefrontal cortex that you started to look at more more recently mm. via the thalamus. Mm. So, so then how do you see that interface between hippocampus and prefrontal? Uh, you said already earlier, prefrontal will be the planning, your executive control system, but it is extracting specific information from the hippocampus or hippocampus extracting specific information from prefrontal cortex. So how do you see that mm. interaction? Well, um, it, it goes both ways for sure, because I talked uh, briefly only about the connections from prefrontal via uh, reunions mm. to the hippocampus, and uh, uh, I believe that uh, there, is, there is a route for uh, prefrontal to influence uh, hippocampus, but there are reverse connections too, at least via the subiculum uh, and from more ventral parts of hippocampus, also directly back to the entorhinal cortex. So, uh, so that uh, prefrontal uh, circuits are updated by uh, probably by uh, the internal maps of the hippocampus. So, uh, like all other uh, or, or many other systems of the brain, it's bidirectional, and then makes it gets so much more difficult to understand mm -hmm. than if it's just a linear process. But that's the way the brain works. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but now the uh, so in some sense, in, in early on the study of hippocampus was very much dominated by a neuropsychological perspective where, where people thought strongly about episodic memory, how this was linked to certain, certain deficits that would occur in humans after, mm. after lesions to the brain, uh, like Mollison, the, the, that's a famous example of that. Mm. Um, and in some sense, now the debate has shifted very much towards a perspective of space, more pragmatic, Autometers, uh, spatial representation, surviving in a box, right? Mm. But in some sense, I would imagine also as a psychologist mm. trying to link psyche with the flesh, you want to claw your way back to this more uh, high-level interpretation of, let's say, um, episodic memory in the context of human experience. Yeah, yeah. No, so, also, while I still believe that the hippocampus is uh, absolutely critical for uh, certain memory functions, uh, uh, but uh, uh, what has happened during the last years is that uh, we have understood much more uh, out of one component of the system, which is the spatial uh, framework, which uh, I believe is uh, fundamental um, uh, reference for memories to be created. So space is uh, a fundamental element of all episodic memories, uh, but it's not all. On top of that, we also have the experiences of what actually happens at those spaces, and hippocampus is critical for that. I think for that to be understood better, we need to know more about the lateral cortex, uh, entorhinal cortex input uh, which uh, is 50% of the input to the hippocampus. So, uh, but I don't think these are exclu mutually exclusive. You, I mean, hippocampus space is a very important uh, element of what is encoded in the hippocampus. But uh, unlike the entorhinal cortex, the hippocampal place signal or space signal is part of uh, a representation that is unique for every single environment. So it's much more linked to, to individual memories. Mm. But now uh, I could also radicalize the view and say, yeah, but if I can just hijack my velocity signal, which in theory I could because it also travels over the thalamus, mm. um, then I could basically impose any kind of metric onto the hippocampus. It doesn't know. It's not a speed. Mm. It doesn't mm. represent space. It represents something else. Mm. But but so so do you see that grid cells might have that flexibility to also represent other kinds of metrics or do you really see it anchored to space? Uh, well, that's hard to say. I mean, it certainly has the potential for doing it, but uh, as far as we have observed, it's really related to space in, in the rat at least. Um, hippocampus is more different. I would think that uh, um, the strict relationships, for example, between uh, the animal's speed 
and the subtle changes in movement of uh, grid fields in the entorhinal cortex, all these relationships are absent in the hippocampus. So it's just that the signal, the influence of speed is much more indirect, even if it can be detected there. So I think it's secondary. Mm-hmm. But then, um, for instance, uh, one view, not certainly that, that the view on, on grid cells has complexified mm-hmm. in terms of uh, we have moved away from a linear feed-forward interaction with the hippocampus, uh, some people are suggesting that that we can also then use that system for for mind travel. This might explain how we can then use sweeps in hippocampus mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. sort of look ahead mm-hmm. and do do mind travel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, d- do you also see that as a as a plausible um, secondary function of this system, or, or do you see that this is physiologically not fully supported? No, uh, I mean at least in humans or primates, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if mind travel is uh, a central function of uh, of uh, grid cells, perhaps even in the rat, because uh, um, I mean you can recreate uh, activity based on memories, so you can sort of re reactivate patterns that happen in real space and to some extent you see that even in in rodents in sleep that you uh, that at least in the hippocampus patterns of activity are replayed um, from uh, that happen patterns that happened in uh, awake experience are replayed in sleep and uh, probably because this is expressed across many brain years it's very likely to happen in the grid cell system too so who knows? I mean, you can probably, uh, con- at least conceivably, replay trajectories also in uh, in the entorhinal cortex. And if you can do that in sleep, then uh, I mean that would probably also apply. Then, when at certain in, in drowsy uh, awake states, you can probably also do the same. I would think. Right. So now, um, you're. You're sort of halfway your your career. You have plenty of years in front of you to 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 change the universe, um, but a lot of experience in in studying the brain. Uh, but of course, magnificent success. We also have to mention the Nobel Prize you 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 shared with with your wife uh, and with uh, John O'Keefe last year. Um, so in that sense, you are in a unique position to to also view let's say the process of doing our science, the process of understanding the way in which we can make progress in, in, in coupling mind and brain in this case, mm. bringing psyche and the flesh together. So so in that sense, if we would follow uh, your example, what is Edward's law <laughs> if we should follow in the study of, of mind and brain? <laughs> no, that, uh, that I don't know. I think... Uh, uh, I think... Um, um, one law is at least just to be uh, brave and uh, try to. I would, if I would give any advice to young students, is that uh, take one long step longer than you usually think. So uh, try to do what you think is impossible, and, uh, and that's what we have tried through the years. We have used opportunities and uh, and uh, done experiments that perhaps uh, we wouldn't have done if we had limited funding or so, and. Uh, and uh, that has uh, paid off. It's mm. a high risk, high gain, it's often called. So Edward's laws, be brave. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So then, uh, look, Tony has plenty of money, so he likes to buy me tickets to fly all over the place. So five years from now, we're going to visit you in Trondheim <laughs> because we're going to confront you with, with the outcome of a prediction you're going to make now. So what, what prediction do you want to make today that you will show to us you have validated five years from now which will be a major next insight in how the brain operates. Well, I mean, in, in how the brain operates, I, I think uh, I, I want to keep it to, to the circuits that I've been usually studying. But uh, I think one of the questions that we really work on is, uh, I think if we understand how the grid cell pattern is generated, that uh, will tell us a lot, not only about grid cells, but actually how patterns are formed in general in the brain so uh, one of the predictions we're trying to test is whether the grid cell network actually has the connectivity that is required for such patterns to to occur for example if cells with similar properties are linked and if cells with uh, uh, also if they are linked in the way that you would predict if this uh, network is going uh, to use uh, inputs from the environment to uh, to uh, to update the internal map so uh, um, that's, that's not, not very e- specific. I'm, 
No, no. Well, I mean, uh, the specific uh, prediction is that cells uh, that uh, that uh, cells that uh, fire at uh, similar locations uh, are preferentially connected. So that's one single. If you want to be specific, then Five you get years. much more details. <laughs> but it's easy to test. All right, Edward Moses, thank you very much for this conversation. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. The CSN podcast was produced by the Convergent Science Network of Biomimetics and Biohybrid Systems, a project funded by the European 7th Research Framework Programme. For more interviews, recorded lectures, or upcoming conferences in the field of biomimetics and biohybrid systems, go to csnnetwork.eu. And thank you for listening.